a mindset which was created when? In her early years and in childhood? or Very possibly, yes. That happens oftentimes when we, we do an exercise called a float back, which is we'll, we'll assess them, understand what it is their, their problem is right now, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about the rest of their life, kind of like hitting the rewind button on a movie to kind of look for evidence of the same sort of thing earlier in their world. Typically, we can find it in cases of complex trauma, and it's often in childhood. I mean, it may be that someone who has had exposure to a trauma or this chronic trauma you're describing, that person may may not actually develop symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Isn't that right? Right. And so what makes the difference between someone who does get PTSD and someone who doesn't both who were exposed to the same either exact trauma or, or kind of trauma. What, what do you think makes that difference? That's a really good question. There have been studies to try to understand that. And the greatest thing that helps a person be resilient is what you're really looking for. The, the, the greatest resiliency tool, the greatest thing that a person can possess to help them recover from a traumatizing event is a strong relationship with a safe person. And, and, it, and remarkably, it doesn't even need to be an important relationship. In the cases of uh, kids and teenagers, it could be a, a school teacher that simply has uh, convinced that child that they are safe and, and that they can have discussions and that when they're with them, they can be okay. And it, it basically, it helps them t- fine-tune that antenna that allows them to get updated information about the world, telling them that they're safe. So strong relationship with at least one individual seems to be the greatest tool that a person can have. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the nature of the trauma could change. I mean, it, it must. It must change physically and emotionally the person's response to stress going forward in their life. Absolutely. In fact, that's what EMDR is is considered a body-centered therapy. And and perhaps I should explain a little bit about what what EMDR is because it sounds a bit mystical. A lot of people come into my office and and ask me if I do that hypnotizing thing where I waggle my finger in front of their face, and that's not at all what EMDR is. The eye movement part of EMDR is simply what we refer to as bilateral stimulation. Essentially, we are mimicking the act of REM sleep. You know, people have very vivid dreams, and they have very vivid dreams because both hemispheres of their brain are actively involved in recalling something. And the eye movement is just evidence of both hemispheres being active. We kind of reverse engineer that. With EMDR, we simulate the mm-hmm. bilateral stimulation either through eye movement. Bilateral stimulation, you mean both sides of your body are stimu- is stimulated? Both sides of the brain, but we'll use the body as a tool to do that. For example, we'll have them rapidly move their eyes back and forth. We'll, we'll do a thing we call tapping. We'll, we'll, we'll literally tap the back of their hands one after the other in a rhythmic pattern. We have palm buzzers which will buzz left then right, then left then right, or perhaps they'll use headphones and it'll beep right ear, left ear, right ear, left ear. And this, we, we, we do this bilateral stimulation while we are asking them to recall their trauma and we'll ask a very scripted list of questions to help them do that. And the idea is to elicit this trauma memory 
while, and at the same time, and this is the important part, mm-hmm. while they are grounded and their antenna is well-tuned. And that's always the first part of EMDR, Mm. is making sure that antenna is well-tuned because without a well-tuned antenna, without that updated, safe information, we're just re-traumatizing them. Yes. So in other words, you couldn't do this kind of work if somebody is uh, really unstable in some way. Exactly. If they don't have their antenna well-tuned, then they're not a candidate for EMDR. So basically what you're saying is that you're almost uh, trying to pretend in a sense that you're dreaming. You're recapitulating REM sleep. You're, is, is that true to say? Well, the, the dreaming is only just one evidence of, the, of what we see in how a brain works when it's working well. That's evidence of the brain processing effectively. And so, yes, in a way, we're, we're trying to recreate that ultimate optimal level of neural functioning. That, that, that We're trying to tune the person's brain to being able to process very, very complex traumatic information the way it would normally. See, our, our brains, they, they, we already have a way of processing information. We do not have an effective way of processing traumatic information. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to tune the brain better so that it can process this more traumatically loaded information. Why do you think these memories uh, and these whole body memories get stuck in a sense? Um, Good question. And the way I understand it, I'm not a neurologist, but the way I understand it is PTSD is a normal response to an abnormal situation. We are wired this way to be cerebral, to think, and to process data in our brain is a relatively complex process. And in situations where we might be harmed or killed, we really don't have the time. And so in the course of human development, we came up with a shortcut where if we're presented with potentially fatal situations, that that entire situation, completely unprocessed, gets encoded, gets stored like a, like a videotape, mm. and it gets stored in a very special place in our very brain so that we don't have to think about it. We just know we're not safe. Some young child is about to cross uh, a busy street. You, as an onlooker, see this happening just a few free- feet in front of you. You grab the child. The child isn't even yours. You grab the child out of harm's way, bring him back to the sidewalk. Only five minutes later do you notice that you cut your leg on a no parking sign or something. You felt none of that. Something else took over. Your amygdala, some part of your brain, tell us about some of that. Right. Essentially, you're describing what a neurologist would probably refer to as the sympathetic response, sympathetic nervous system, uh, which is, you know, it's the fight or flight part of us. If we need to act instantly, there is a mechanism in our brain and that, that will cue us up, that will bypass all the unnecessary information, all the unnecessary data that our brain is processing and go straight into ACT. And one of the things that gets shut down is those sensory neurons, Mm. the the part of our brain that tells us we're in pain. They're not useful in those situations. In fact, they're a hindrance. And yet the same person could that night, the next night, there might be recurring nightmares developing. 
And then, no, granted, this may be not quite post-traumatic stress. This is, might be acute stress. Uh, but regardless, something may actually stay with this person. And they go, they wake up the next day, the next month, the next year, and um, they see young children uh, playing on the sidewalk, and they are struck by this feeling that they've never had before. But it's this feeling that has occurred since they rescued that child. Exactly. I've got my own experiences with that, in fact, uh, from the Gulf War, if I can tell you. that, that uh, I, call it, I call it the nine-second rule. Uh, when I was uh, being trained with the Marine Corps, we were, we were trained to put our gas masks on in nine seconds or we die. That's, and so we were, they were, we were very well trained in that. And when I was in Kuwait during the Gulf War, somebody called the gas alarm. And we didn't know. It turns out it, after the fact that it was a false alarm. But we didn't know that when they called the alarm. And so in less than nine seconds, I put on my gas mask. And I, then I clicked into the other part of my work, which was doing a neurological assessment for all the Marines. And I got through this, and time went by very, you know, in, a, in a weird way. It's a very surreal memory when I think about it. And it wasn't until maybe 15 or 20 minutes after they called the all clear that I realized my lip was bleeding, that I, that I was clenching wow. my jaw so tightly during this wow. that, that I actually cut my own lip. But I didn't know that. And then I realized that's when I started to shake a little bit. And that's when the, the parasympathetic nervous system kicked in and tried to calm me down a little bit. My brain automatically filtered out information that was not useful yeah. to keep me alive and to keep keep me safe. Yeah. And if it's not to personal question, did you go on to have post-traumatic kinds of symptoms from that uh, incident? No, because it wasn't an immediate threat. It was, it was a cerebral one. I thought I was unsafe. There was no obvious thing. There was no thing I could look at or listen to or touch or point to that said, this is the thing that might kill me. It was what I understood the mm. world to be about. 